How can we as healthcare practitioners move from just providing disease management to providing true healthcare? That is the question, and this is the answer. Welcome to Reinvent Healthcare, the podcast that helps you grow your practice and expand your skills as a practitioner. I'm Dr. Rita Marie Loscalzo. Let's dive in. Welcome back to Reinvent Healthcare, the podcast for wellness-minded people and professionals who are passionate about transforming our broken disease management system. I'm Dr. Rita Marie Loscalzo, and I passionately believe that everybody has the ability to reverse and heal from whatever diseases and dysfunctions they're suffering from with the right intervention. Obviously, you know, there's some exceptions and congenital things and certain things that we can't reverse, but so much attention needs to be placed on looking at diet, lifestyle, nutrition, and getting people in balance. So today, we're going to talk about some of the big mistakes that most doctors make when they're working with people in managing type 2 diabetes. Here's the thing. Type 2 diabetes, in my experience in over 30 years of practice, is preventable and in most cases reversible within a short period of time. Now, of course, it depends on how far along and how long it's been since it was diagnosed and how much damage has been done. But there's so much that can be done for type 2 diabetes. And most doctors are just not educated on it. So today, I'm going to focus on helping you to see what some of those mistakes are so you don't make them, and then what some of the alternatives are so that we can all help these people to prevent and reverse type 2 diabetes and all of the negative side effects that it incurs. Type 2 diabetes, we all know it's a blood sugar imbalance, hyperglycemia, the blood sugar gets too high. It is usually preceded by a period of insulin resistance. And the period of insulin resistance is not just when the person's blood sugar goes above 100 over the course of you know, several weeks or months. It's actually something that is be happening for weeks, months, and mostly decades in advance. So let's talk about some of the mistakes doctors make because here's the thing. They jump in and they talk to people about it and they manage it way, way way too late. So let's talk about the first mistake. And that has to do with testing, right? When the average person goes into the doctor for their annual, they get fasting blood sugar amongst other markers tested. And when the blood sugar goes above 100, the doctor says, hmm, you have pre-diabetes. Now, at least that's what they're supposed to say. Usually it's on three consecutive occasions to make the diagnosis of insulin resistance. And so oftentimes they'll send the person away and say, hey, just watch what you're eating, manage your weight, come back in a few months, let's test it again. Rather than telling them how to watch their weight, what they should be eating, what they should be avoiding, and all the things they should be doing. In reality, what they're doing is wasting the opportunity to help that person get in balance. Because typically, Sally's sugar didn't just jump to 105, 110. The previous readings were probably in the warning range. And in my opinion, that warning range is actually 
where there's some dysfunction happening. I call it pre-insulin resistance. And so there's evidence, there's studies that show that when the blood sugar fasting goes over 90 consecutively and consistently and reliably tested, that that person is at much higher risk. In fact, I've seen studies showing as much as four times the risk of cardiovascular disease. And those people are typically on the path to diabetes. But in medical school, nobody taught that, right? So nobody really looks at prevention. Nobody looks at early signs. We look at when does the person have a diagnosable disease? And there's an ICD-9 code for insulin resistance. There's an ICD-9 code for type 2 diabetes. There's no ICD-9 code for pre-insulin resistance, the period of time where you're heading towards diabetes, but you're not quite there. And so these people are missed, these poor people. So what should they be doing? Well, first of all, the doctor should be looking at as soon as they see a patient with blood sugar over 90, they should be educating them. And we'll talk about that in one of the other mistakes. Educating them, telling them the things they can do to prevent themselves from going down that path. So they should be recommending a blood sugar meter, ideally a CGM, a continuous glucose meter. Now, it's not always practical for everybody if they're on Medicare or they're on specific insurance, they're you know low income and they can't afford a CGM because unfortunately it's prescription only and the, the uh, insurance companies won't pay for it unless you're already diagnosed. Sad. We can talk about that on another uh, episode. So, you know, getting them to get a $15 meter at the grocery store, at the pharmacy, would be a good thing to do and teaching them how to read it and how to see what's going on. That's postprandial testing. So that's number one. The testing, well, number one of the testing, the first mistake is not testing appropriately. So postprandial and having a person even just testing their early morning glucose is better than what they're doing right now soon as it goes over 90. Okay, that's number one. Number two, mostly they're not testing A1C. And should a doctor be aware that this person's at risk of insulin resistance or type 2 diabetes, they can put a diagnosis code of insulin resistance and then run a, an A1C, hemoglobin A1C, to see what over the time has been the average. Now, in my opinion, Every annual should have an A1C if the person has any risk factors, if the person has family history, if the person has genetic markers, any of that, they should be routinely monitored for A1C. But even if it's not routinely monitored for A1C, like every year, you do a baseline and if it looks good, and what is looking good, we'll get to that in a moment, if A1C looks good, then you test it again in five years. If it starts to creep up, then we start testing it more regularly. And then we get to what we're going to talk about in mistake number three, which is education. So A1C should be in the range of 4.8 to 5.2 for ideal. Unfortunately, the range that the lab puts out there and that medical doctors are taught is as long as it's under 5.7, we're good. But as soon as it hits 5.7, you can diagnose this person with insulin resistance. Oh, what's wrong with this picture? Well, first of all, lab error, right? 5.6, 5.7, right? It's too close. So we like to keep a safe range. 
Now, when we look at A1C, and you really should be studying this, there's some really great charts that you can just find on the internet that show you what does the A1C mean in terms of average glucose. And when they get to 5.7, it's an average glucose of 119. What's wrong with that picture? That means that while they're sleeping, counting their fasting and counting all their peaks after eating, 119, way too high, way, way too high. Whereas at 5.0, it's more like 90 something, which is good because it averages the peaks, which are going to go higher in people who are uncontrolled. And then the valleys, which is mostly the fasting, the in-between meals and overnight. So we want to keep that A1C. We want to routinely test it, but we also want to keep it in the 4.8 to 5.0 too. Now, there are things that can get in the way of A1C testing. We'll do another podcast episode because I can spend a whole episode talking about, you know, when you can get incorrect measures there. But the truth of the matter is something is better than nothing. There's also fructosamine, which is, that was kind of discarded, but it's actually a pretty good measure. A1C test for, as we know, three months to, to four, like 90 to 120 days of averages of the system. And if the red blood cells are glycosylated, meaning sugar-coated, guess what? They're pointy, they're sticky, they may damage the blood vessel linings and put people at risk of plaque buildup, damage to the vessels, and cardiovascular disease. So we don't want that. We want to save people from that. And the third mistake in testing that is almost 100% made is not testing insulin. Generally speaking, doctors test insulin after a person's been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, but not always, and definitely in type 1 or if they suspect a lot of latent uh, autoimmune diabetes of adulthood. Right? But everybody needs an insulin. You don't know how many people I have tested on their insulin levels and found that their insulin levels were sky high. Their fasting insulin should be ideally between two and five, really ideally between two and three, but the, the functional range is between two and five. I see people all the time, they're six, they're seven, they're eight, doctors say that's fine. The labs actually say up to 19 is fine. And what's wrong with that picture? Why do we need insulin when we're fasting? Why should insulin be elevated when we're fasting? Insulin is a fat storage hormone. Insulin will constrict blood vessels. Insulin will put a person at risk of hypertension and a whole lot of other things. So we don't want it up like that. We really want it in that two to five or ideally two to three, in a really functionally optimal person, right? So start testing these things. Start routinely testing insulin on people, especially if they say, I can't lose weight. I'm trying, I'm starving myself, I'm going to the gym and I can't lose weight. We have to look at insulin levels. A1C, insulin, and postprandial glucose. Three amazing markers that are not tested and we're missing people. And these poor people who end up with diabetes diagnosis, we wait until their fasting glucose is over 120, 125. And by then, they have had decades of damage to their blood vessel linings, decades of problems related to high insulin and high glucose. So the other mistake doctors make is that they don't treat people as individuals. It's like, this is the routinely, routinely the way we handle type two diabetes. Oh, okay, all diabetes patients are the same. No, they're not. 
right? We really need to look at their eating behaviors, their lifestyle behaviors, their glucose measurements over time, over the course of a 24-hour period, which is why I'm such a big fan of CGMs. And I wish that they would become commonplace. And I think the more people that are prescribed to, the more the drug companies are going to recoup their investment in the research and the prices will come down. There's no reason these little discs should be $70 a a person. There's no reason they should be prescription only, right? We need to get them into the hands of everybody to help them prevent this horrible disease. This disease costs the government, you know, that Medicare, uh, all the insurance companies and people in general, billions of dollars. And this can be avoided by proper approaches, proper management early on before the disease is diagnosed. I've seen people who have started to measure the way we explain to them and they wouldn't have been missed by the system because they're, it's too early on. But then when they start to test, they go, whoops, something's going on here. Something's going on. We can catch it decades in advance, right? You get those people that come in and say, oh, as a kid, I couldn't go more than two hours between meals. Uh, you know, as a teenager, I was constantly raiding the refrigerator, but we expect that of kids and teenagers. As an adult, I feel like I need to be changed to the refrigerator because I can't go very long without eating because it drops. That's a clear indication of high insulin, right? And then once the insulin gets depleted enough or the cells get resistant enough, that's when the sugar starts to go up. And the other part of lack of individualized treatment plans is, oh, look, you're insulin resistance. Let's put you on metformin. And after a few years, oh, that's not working really well. Let's add some other oral medications to bring down your sugars. And then it's like, huh, those aren't working. Let's put you on insulin. It's rare type 2 diabetic that needs insulin. I've worked with lots of them. And with the proper attention to diet and lifestyle, even those who are on insulin have been able to drop their levels and even get off of insulin after a short period of time of the right approach. And one of the approaches is fasting, intermittent fasting, and proper attention to diet. Uh, Low glycemic diet, but has to be for that person. Some people can tolerate higher amounts of whole foods that are high glycemic. Other people can't. Some of it has to do with genetics. A lot of it has to do with genetics. But there's other lifestyle factors that we need to be taking into account in individualizing the treatment protocols. Uh, And then finally, that education, and educating people to take charge of their health, empowering people to know how to manage their glucose levels, how to manage their insulin levels through proper attention to diet and lifestyle. And this goes back to CGMs and meters, $15, not very expensive. You can get very inexpensive ones with test strips that people can afford to do. And you teach them how to figure out what dietary approaches, what stress responses they're having, their exercise, and you get to manage all of that. The lifestyle factors are critical. And as doctors, we need to be able to educate people as health coaches, nurses, anybody who is in contact with the public. We need to be able to educate them as to not just how to manage their diabetes, but catching them early on. So we can help them manage their blood sugar, their metabolic health before it becomes diabetes. So going back, what do we do about this? Well, 
It has to do with knowing the right testing, ordering the right testing, teaching people how to manage from the testing, how to manage their diet, how to manage their lifestyle, how to get their sleep and their stress movement under control, personalized to them, and then getting the right testing on a regular basis as we see them moving into that potential risk factor. And being strong in our recommendations with people, not just saying, well, it would be a good idea if, look, Mary, you've got a family history of diabetes. You've got a family history of cardiovascular disease. Your numbers are creeping up. And I want you to avoid the pain, the expense of diabetes. Let's get you on this program. Let's get you monitoring. Makes sense, right? We don't want to treat people after they have a disease. We want to help them to prevent it. Not only is that going to prevent pain and suffering on their part, it's going to save the taxpayers, the insurance companies, the, the society as a whole, the huge amount of expense that's associated with currently preventable diseases. So I encourage you to start to adopt a patient centered, a client-centered approach, not the routine, run this test, this is okay, send them out for a year and test them again. Educating them as to how to prevent going downhill whenever we see even those earliest of warning signs. We have a free guide to, I think it's called fasting, the benefits of fasting. It's an intermittent fasting guide and tells you all the different kinds of fasting. Not everybody is open and amenable to fasting. Not everybody's in a place where fasting is good, but there's different kinds of fasting that you can use with people to help them manage their glucose and insulin levels and help them prevent and even reverse the effects of type 2 diabetes. So I encourage you to go there and download that. The link should be in the show notes. And if you want to know more, this is just a small part of what we teach people in our nutritional endocrinology training to help people to get to the root cause and really help people to get well and prevent the downhill spiral that we see as commonplace in our society. So you can go to inemethod.com and check that out. And until next time, shine on. Thanks for listening to Reinvent Healthcare. We are part of the movement to change healthcare for the better. If you liked this episode, leave a rating and a review. And for more resources to support you in growing a thriving and fulfilling practice, visit our website at inemethod.com.